0: Now, welcome to another inspiring edition of Sound Insight with Dr. Tom Kern. Good morning. Welcome to Sound Insight. This is Tom Kern. It's great to be with you. We continue on our journey to deeper healing, spiritual healing, through the sacrament of penance and reconciliation. So, today we have our part six where we're going to talk about. Uh, the resolution to never do it again. Isn't that a striking thing? Well, today we'll talk about that. And I hope and pray that this Faith and Family Friday program is a blessing to you. And uh, as we come to the, the home stretch of our series on confession, five sentences that will heal your life. Hey, this is Dr. Tom Carran, the host of Sound Insight, but also a realtor serving wonderful folks like you in the fifth sentence that will heal your life, I will never do it again. And this is part of content that I've uh, developed in a book form, Confession, Five Sentences That Will Heal Your Life. Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Loving God, we thank you and praise you today because of the grace of, uh, of your Holy Spirit at work in our hearts. I pray today that that Holy Spirit would stir within us a deeper resolve a deeper resolution to do your will, to will what you will for our lives, that we would grow into the heights of holiness and the perfection of charity. Lord our God, anoint this time of teaching. Be at work in it. Shape our hearts and minds according to your purpose and plan for our lives. Mother Mary, we do turn to you. We ask for your maternal intercession and your mantle of protection to be over us and over our own vocations. As together we pray, hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I still remember my first car. It was a 1974 Mercury Montego. And what I remember particularly about it was that its color was a lemon yellow color and it was a lemon in more than one ways. It, I don't know, I'm not sure it was worth what it cost. In any case, uh, growing up in, in Massachusetts, one of, the, uh, one of the things that the state required was that cars would be inspected so that they would be able to be safely identified as being able to drive on the road. And this was something that I feared because every year when I would get my car inspected, it would inevitably fail, and that meant that I had about two weeks to get the car fixed. And i had to bring it back to the inspection station and uh, if it wasn't fixed i'd face another fine so this was something that i didn't enjoy particularly well one year i remember i uh, missed the deadline for the month when i was supposed to get my car inspected and sure enough i had a police officer pull me over and because of my lack of an up-to-date inspection sticker and uh, i got a fine well you think this would motivate me to go to the, to the uh, inspection station and getting it, uh, getting it inspected. But I knew my car wasn't going to pass. And I also knew that I didn't have that much money that uh, I'd be able to get everything fixed in two weeks and face another fine. So here I am. What am I going to do? Well, what I decided to do was to find out what color the inspection sticker was for that particular month uh, in that particular year. And what I did was, I got a piece of paper that was about the same color as the inspection sticker, and I cut it out to be about the same shape as the inspection sticker, and then I actually put it in the spot where the inspection sticker was supposed to go. (laughs) Yes, I did this. Well, what's also kind of uh, funny, well, I don't know how funny it is, but uh, this was uh, the time when I was actually about to enter the seminary. Now, my intention was to get the car fixed and to get it, uh, to get the car. Uh, dealt with and get the inspection sticker. I wasn't just simply trying to uh, ignore the law. I just wanted to avoid having to pay all this money. You notice the rationalization I'm going through right now? (laughs) Well, this is the situation I'm in when I enter the seminary. Now, in the seminary, one of the practices that you'd made was a uh, regular confession every couple weeks I'd go to confession and I can remember confessing this I uh, confess this and and in, in in the seminary one of the things that can happen is you can get to go to the same confessor regularly so I was going to the same confessor one two three times saying to him I confess that I'm not honoring the law regarding my car because I haven't got an up-to-date inspection sticker on it so I'm driving in a in a in a way that's breaking the law and I would confess this and I uh, You know, the priest would give me absolution, and this happened one, two, three, four times. And on the third or fourth confession, when I confessed this same sin, the priest, uh, uh, after I finished confessing, he said to me, Now, regarding that inspection sticker, he said, Tom, I want you to stop confessing that. And I thought to myself, Yes, I'm off the hook. You know, I'm free from having to deal with this. And he said, No, no, no. He said, Tom, stop confessing it until you're willing to do something about it. And I went, ooh! you see, what was I doing? Well, let's take a look at the five sentences that will heal your life that are associated with confession. I was accusing myself, I did it. I did say I was sorry that I had done it and it was a way in which I was sorry. I was asking for forgiveness, forgive me. I was doing the penance that the priest was asking of me, I will make up for it. But what was lacking was the resolution, I will never do it again. And that is an essential part of going to confession is this sense of saying that I will not settle for sin. In fact, what the church would call this is a lack of full contrition. You remember that sorrow for sins? When I talked about that under the uh, under the heading of the second sentence, for, uh, I'm sorry. But the catechism goes on to say that contrition includes the resolution not to sin again. And so what we really need is a firm resolve, a firm resolve. And well, what does that show up like? Well, I want to look to the inspiration we can draw from the life of a very young saint, a, a, a young man who died when he was 14, Dominic Savio, lived in the 19th century in Italy. And um, when he made his first communion, he, he wrote some maxims for his life, some, some statements that he wanted to live out for his life. When he went, when he went to make his first communion, and his fourth maxim read, Death, but not sin. Death, but not sin. Now that is resolve. That's a young man, even as he's approaching this age of first communion, he's getting the seriousness of sin and the call we have to live free from sin. If I took a look at the life I actually lived, not not the maxim that I would want my life to be, but the, the maxim that actually describes the life I'm living, it wouldn't be death, but not sin. It would probably be discomfort, but not sin. You see, as soon as things would get a little too uncomfortable, as soon as the heat got turned up too much, I'd collapse like a house of cards and give in, give in to sin, settle for less. Not St. Dominic. What he had was a deeper resolution, a firm, courageous resolution not to sin again. Well, When you think about the five sentences that will heal our lives, these five sentences associated with confession, this great sacrament of reconciliation. And I mentioned how they get more and more difficult with each time that we go further down the list. Accusing myself is difficult enough, I did it. Accusing myself with real sincere sorrow, with sorrow rooted in love, saying I'm sorry is even more difficult. Putting myself in the hands of the one I've offended by saying forgive me is that much more difficult. Saying that I'm going to make up for the damage I've caused is just now stretching me almost beyond measure. Well, almost beyond measure until I get to the last sentence. When I say to myself, oh, when I make the announcement, I will never do it again. When you think about it, I will never do it again. Well, I probably will do it again. I, I think about uh, the way I live my life and, and I realize I do fail. I do fail pretty much daily in terms of honoring God. How can I say and mean, I will never do it again? And, and does God really expect that of me? Think of the story in John chapter 8, the story of Jesus and the woman who was caught in adultery that is brought to her by the leaders of the Jewish people. They bring her, this woman, and they are setting a trap for Jesus, right? They want to trap him into doing something that will discredit him, Right? Um, and what does he end up doing? He doesn't fall for the trap. He ends up saying, let the one among you who is without sin cast the first stone. You know the story. And after everyone leaves, uh, he's an, alone with the woman and, and, she, and he says, Have, has no one condemned you? No one, sir. He says, neither do I condemn you. And then what does he say next? What he says is, go and sin no more. I will never do it Again. So this is a command that he places upon this woman. He expects her to go and sin no more. A moment after, he challenges those that are around this woman that they could cast that first stone if they have no sin. In other words, he realizes, and they realize, that they have sinned and that they do sin. And now he's saying to her, go, don't go! go and, and don't commit any sin. It's a fascinating juxtaposition of what he knows about everyone that's around the woman and what he asks of the woman and what he asks of us. Now, this isn't the only time in the Gospel of John where Jesus makes such a command, and nor is it the only time in scriptures where we get a sense of what God expects of us. Here's a passage in Sirach chapter 15, beginning at verse 14. When God in the beginning created man, he made him subject to his own free choice. If you choose, you can keep the commandments. It is loyalty to do his will. There are set before you fire and water. To whichever you choose, stretch forth your hand. Before man are life and death, whichever he chooses shall be given him. Immense is the wisdom of the Lord. He is mighty in power and all-seeing. The eyes of God see all that he has made. He understands man's every deed. No man does he command to sin. To none does he give strength for lies." So here we have this profound passage in Sirach which addresses this truth on the one hand that God gives none of us the strength or permission ever to sin, ever. And yet in our hands is the mystery of our choice, the choice whether to sin or to not. So in part, in part, the mystery of sin being in our lives is associated with our choosing with our choice this is also confirmed in the sense that when we are faced with a trial a test a, a temptation that's particularly difficult uh, we can succumb to it and yet we can be asking ourselves well i, I, I collapsed i gave in i settled for less. where were you god did you give me the grace where were you well first corinthians 10 13 talks about this and says no trial will come to you but what is human God is faithful and will not let you be tried beyond your strength. But with the trial, he'll also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. What he's saying, what the scriptures are saying is that God offers us the grace. Whenever we're faced with the temptation, God doesn't leave us abandoned. He doesn't leave us orphaned. He gives us the grace, the strength. He makes it available to us that upon choosing it would give us the grace to remain faithful in the moment. There are other passages that go along with this same way. Um, one of my favorites is from 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 14. This is the last passage that I'll share that gives really the scriptural basis for this idea that we are called to go and sin no more. And this lays it out in more of the positive side. It's not so much what we are not to be doing. It's, it's more about who we are to become. Did you just hear that? It's not so much about what we are avoiding doing, namely sinning, but rather more about who we are becoming as a result of our relationship, our loving union with God. 1 Peter 1.14 says this, Like obedient children, do not act in compliance uh, with the desires of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves, in every aspect of your conduct. Did you hear that? Be holy yourselves in every aspect of your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now, if you invoke as father, him who judges impartially according to each one's works, conduct yourselves with reverence during the time of your sojourning, realizing that you were ransomed from your futile conduct, handed on by your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as a spotless, unblemished lamb. Now this condenses in this brief two verses of scripture so much of what this chapter is all about. The resolution not to sin again is rooted in what Christ has done for us, who he has made us to be, and what he gives to us to live out that new identity. Our identity is we are children of God. Why? Because of Christ's suffering, death, and resurrection, we have the opportunity of coming into a relationship with the Father as a son or daughter in the Son, as an adopted child of God. We are drawn into the life of holiness. We aren't just called to do acts that conform with holiness, we are called to a new identity, an identity that is not merely human, but literally shares in the divine nature. We are to be holy because we are in a loving union with the one who is all holy, with God himself. And so Jesus chose death because we had chosen sin. Shouldn't we choose death rather than sin? He chose to die to free us from sin. Shouldn't we choose to live free from sin? St. Dominic had it right. At seven years of age, he got it right. Death, but not sin. Why don't we? We need greater resolve. Hi, this is Dr. Tom Curran, and you know me as the host of Sound Insight. I am also letting folks know that But in order to get that resolve, that resolution not to sin again, what we need is a God-given vision for our lives. Did you hear that? A God-given way of seeing our own identity. Why? One of the natural things we're inclined to do is forge our own sense of identity. I am who I want to say that I am. Or we let other outside influences shape our identity. I am who these people are telling me I am or what this position tells me I am or what my family name gives to me as my identity or the country I live in and and things of all of that nature. But our deepest identity is found in the eyes of God. Now, this is so important why. If we're going to resolve not to sin again, what we're going to realize is this, is that we are not going to be able to accomplish this vision of not sinning again all on our own. What's the God given vision for our call and our resolution not to sin again? Jesus himself gives it to us in the Sermon on the Mount. One simple verse in Matthew 5 48. He says, So be perfect, just as your heavenly Father is perfect. Sinning no more is not a result of our own efforts, it's not a result of our own pure grit and determination to avoid something. Rather, it's about being perfect, being made full and complete and whole, to be made perfect just as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Did you just hear that? That's such a stunning vision of what perfection is. It's not just human perfection. It's somehow associated with the perfection of the Father in Heaven Himself. It has to do with divinity, and the perfection of divinity. How are we ever possibly going to approach, approximate, or be perfect the way that our Heavenly Father is perfect? The simple answer is, on our own, we will not. On our own, it is absolutely, completely, radically impossible. And so the question then becomes, when we consider the call to holiness as a call to share to be perfect after the manner of god's infinite holiness what do we come to realize the radical poverty of our own situation this is part and parcel of our confession of faith we confess in faith that our father in heaven is infinitely perfect majestic in holiness immense in his glory And you know what we also acknowledge? That we have been brought near to the Holy One. We've been brought near in a union of love. We've been brought near through a transformation of our lives in such a way that His own divine life is poured into us. Our own lives become transformed so that through Jesus Christ, through His union of His divine nature and His human nature, Jesus, who is God and man, through that union, when we come to be in union with Jesus as human beings, we also will come into a transformative union with His divine nature. We come to share in the life of God. We are adopted children of God, new creations. We are elevated to have the supernatural life of God in us. These are all ways Of getting at the same point, that Jesus Christ gives us the power to live out the call that he asks us to fulfill. Did you just hear that? What is impossible on our own strength, he makes us capable of becoming. Not just doing, but becoming. The Catechism of the Catholic Church confirms this idea in several passages in beautiful language. Catechism says in paragraph 1709. He who believes in Christ becomes a son of God. This filial adoption transforms him by giving him the ability to follow the example of Christ. See, it's an ability that's given. It's it, There's a transformation that equips and makes us capable. Catechism goes on. It makes him capable of acting rightly and doing good. In union with the Savior, the disciple attains the perfection of charity which is holiness. Having matured in grace, the moral life blossoms into eternal life and the glory of heaven. Recreated as adopted children of God, this occurs through the sacraments. Through the very sacraments, the life of God is poured into our hearts. The uh, the Catechism talks about this in treating the sacraments of initiation, baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist, They lay the the foundations of every Christian life, the Catechism says in paragraph 1212. The sharing in the divine nature given to men through the grace of Christ bears a certain likeness to the origin, development, and nourishing of natural life. The faithful are born anew by baptism, strengthened by the sacrament of confirmation, and receive in the Eucharist the food of eternal life. By means of these sacraments of Christian initiation, They thus receive in increasing measure the treasures of the divine life and advance toward the perfection of charity. Did you hear a phrase? There's a phrase that that jumps out of both of the passages that I just read from the Catechism. That phrase is the perfection of charity. The perfection of charity. That's the traditional way of referring to The universal call to holiness. All of us are called to discover our identity in our relationship with God. And the union that our identity, that our relationship with God bears fruit in, is a sharing in the attribute of divinity, which is holiness. We become holy because of our union with God. Now, this call to grow in holiness. This call to grow into the fullness of the divine life in our own lives is called the perfection of charity, the call to the perfection of charity. Listen to what the Catechism says in paragraph 2013, and it, it begins with a reference to the dogmatic constitution on the church from the Second Vatican Council, Lumen Gentium. All Christians in any state or walk of life are called to the fullness of Christian life and to the perfection of charity. All are called to holiness. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Did you hear that? It references that call that Jesus gives to all of us in Matthew 5:48. be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, links that to the call to be holy, and that is then expressed in this call to achieve the fullness of the Christian life in the perfection of charity. Charity here, referring to that word caritas or love. The catechism goes on, In order to reach this perfection, the faithful should use the strength dealt out to them by Christ's gift, so that doing the will of the Father in everything, they may wholeheartedly devote themselves to the glory of God and to the service of their neighbor. That's paragraph twenty thirteen. 2013, uh, in the Catechism. And so you can see the Church is circling around and exploring the call we have to achieve the perfection of charity. Now, what does the perfection of charity look like? How do you uh, explicate that? How do you unfold that? What does that mean? Well, St. Thomas Aquinas gives us, in the Summa Theologica, a bit more content, a bit more of a, of a development of this concept of the perfection of charity. When he says that we are ca- when we are called by the perfection of charity, to love, to what? To love the Lord our God with all our hearts, all our souls, all our minds, and all our strength. That's the first and greatest commandment. And then the second, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Or, as the way that, um, the way that this comes to be articulated, to love our neighbors with that very love of God. We love God and we love others by God's love through God's love, with that very love that flows from, overflows out of, our relationship of love with God. Now, St. Thomas Aquinas makes an important distinction. He says that we are called to the perfection of charity, to love the Lord our God with all of this perfection, with this perfection of charity. And, and what does that mean? How does that get defined? He says it's when you love God as much as you are able to love him. That's what perfection means. There's no more way to increase that you love the Lord your God as much as you're able to love him. Now, what's really interesting, and this is pure Aquinas, <laughs> is that he'll make a distinction between the uh, the kinds of perfection of charity that are available to us. And what he says is this, is that basically, well, this is a kind of a way of pray, paraphrasing it, is that here on earth, we are not able to achieve the perfection of charity perfectly. There is a perfect perfection of charity that we will one day attain where? In a heaven, when we arrive, when we see God, when we've undergone not just this journey of life, but we've undergone any final purification that, that needs to happen, and then we make it home to heaven. And in heaven, we will love the Lord our God with all our hearts, all our souls, all our minds, all our strength, perfectly, completely. There will be no increase in our love of God in heaven. We will love him perfectly and completely when we're there because we have arrived. Well, what about here? Well, here on earth, we haven't arrived. We're on the journey. We're on the way. We're sojourners. That was what the catechism referred to us as. When we're here on earth, we are people who are on the way home. Now, what's what's the implication of that for this perfection of charity? Well, well, the implication is that the love of God that is poured out to us by the Holy Spirit because of the redeeming work of Christ, that's happened. In the sacraments, we are transformed. But are we completely transformed? Are we perfectly transformed? The answer is no. We're still on the way. Jesus Christ has redeemed the world 2,000 years ago. But that process of redemption, that process of setting free and transforming me, is still happening. It's still underway. It can grow and diminish, not in itself, but in its realization in me. You see, God's holiness lives in me. The challenge is, it's not shining forth fully through me. There are many ways that I'm blocking the full expression, the full realization the full manifestation of God's holiness in my life. And so the perfection of charity that is available to me here on earth is a perfection in loving the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength in a way that takes account of the fact that I'm still on the way. Still on the way meaning I'm still prone to sin. I'm still inclined towards sin, evil, Death and darkness. Yes, Christ is victorious in me, but there are parts in my lives, my, the parts in my life and in yours that are not yet fully conquered by Christ. His victory hasn't yet been made fully apparent. Now, this doesn't mean that we have permission to sin, but Aquinas makes a distinction. And the way that I'll, I'll define the distinction is this Aquinas says essentially, look, don't jump into sin. The perfection of charity that's available to you on earth is a perfection that says, I will not intentionally, consciously, knowingly choose sin. But out of human weakness, out of the frailty of living in the flesh, living in the body with these fallen tendencies, I may slip and fall into sin. There's the difference. Living a life that says, go and sin no more doesn't mean that I will never sin. That sin doesn't still be, is not still associated with my life. But it does mean that I'm not willfully choosing, intentionally, consciously chasing after sin. Let me give an example. Last summer, Carrie and I with our kids were down uh, at the beach here well, I guess what you call a beach in the Puget Sound area of uh, Washington, uh, down, by the, the, down by the seashore and there was a sandy area and we weren't dressed in bathing suits. We were dressed in summer clothing just for a walk on the beach. And I had my two sons' hands, John Mark, who at that time was three, and John Luke, who was two. And uh, they were told by Kerry and me in no uncertain terms, do not get wet. Well, as we're walking along by the edge of the water, John Mark unfortunately slipped and fell into the water. He fell into the water and he just got all wet. Now, in order for me to help John Mark, I let go of John Luke's hand and I reached down to get John Mark out of the water. Well, John Luke saw his chance and he started to make a beeline, a direct run for the water. And I turned and I said to him, John Luke, don't you dare, as he's running to the water. And what John Luke heard was, John Luke, now's your chance. Because he just made a run for that water and he just jumped right in, splashed all around and had this biggest laugh and smile. So I had to go pull them both out of the water. Now the reality is they were both wet. They were both wet. They both ended up in a situation that I did not want. But there's a radical difference between how they got there. John Mark got there by falling, slipped and fell into the water. John Luke got there by choosing to make a run for it, by recognizing the voice of his father that was saying to him, don't you dare, you know this is not what I want for you. And yet he still did it and he relished it. Now, you see the difference. In our own lives of faith, there is going to be a radical difference between falling into sin out of human weakness and jumping into sin. And so when we are called to the perfection of charity, that means that we are called to strive to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, souls, minds, and strengths. But in humility, we will see every single day times that we slip up, we slip and fall in our thinking, in our speaking, in our acting, or in the things that we are avoiding or omitting that we should be doing, or things that we didn't avoid. And so these will be instances where we slip and fall out of weakness. If you slip and fall out of weakness, this is not a part, this is not. This does not mean that you have denied either your resolution not to sin again, or Christ's call to be perfect. What you are realizing is that you're still on the way and your call to the perfection of charity, your call to be holy in every aspect of your conduct, is a call that you're living here on earth. When you are experiencing, in some measure, the redemption that Christ wants for your life, and yet, at the same time, still living on the way. You're not yet fully redeemed. You're still on the way home. What I want to talk about now, is I want to shift and talk a little bit, bit about how Proper preparation, proper preparation for the sacrament through making a good examination of conscience is a powerful means to fostering an increase in the resolution not to sin again. Having a good examination of conscience is a critical way for us not only to prepare well for confession, but also to stir within us a deeper resolution to never sin again. I, um, my car does not have a GPS system, but I got a smartphone that has one built into it. And I, I used it a couple months back. I was, uh, I do a radio program Monday through Friday. Ordinarily I do it from my own small studio in our ministry office. But this particular day I was driving up to the main headquarters, uh, of Sacred Heart Radio, the, the network that I do my program on. And, uh, as I was, um, as I was, uh, driving there, I've been there a number of times, but I wasn't really paying attention. And I took a right hand turn. It was one turn too early. And this GPS system went off and it said, You've gone the wrong way, turn around in a hundred yards and go back heading north uh, or something like that. It was a voice that spoke to me and let me know that I had taken the wrong turn. That GPS system is a, a wonderful tool. You see I, I wasn't really worried about getting lost heading to Sacred Heart Radio because I'd been there before. But it was very helpful when I took a wrong turn and I needed to just get back on track. That's like our lives of faith. If you are really desiring to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, if, if that is a, a goal and a, and a, and a longing and, and something that you're willing for your life, what we are less concerned about is our lives uh, getting totally off track, totally off course. What we are more concerned about is getting on the, just making a wrong turn and getting off track a little bit and having a, an internal spiritual GPS system could be very helpful. Frankly, it'd be very helpful in both situations. Be helpful in those, uh, those times when we're way off track and just completely lost. But it would also be very helpful in the daily journeys that we make in the course of, of living our lives to have that little internal GPS system that would let us know, you're getting off track here, turn around, get back on track. That internal GPS system is our conscience. Now, I've used the analogy or the metaphor of sin as a spiritual disease. This is something that our tradition uh, really makes prominent, and that the Lord wants to provide us with the proper way of experiencing healing from spiritual illnesses. Now, if we play that analogy out, when I go to the doctor, the doctor does a, a routine physical examination, I'm going to speak to the doctor about what ails me, and the doctor will do, as part of the, the checkup, a number of things. Well, when my doctor wants to listen to my heart, She asks me to sit still, to be silent. She needs me to be silent so she can hear what is happening in my heart. She can hear my heart. Now, remember, I I mentioned that the conscience is in that inner sanctuary of our hearts. What I wanna propose to you is, if we wanna have a more alert and formed conscience, an alert capability, To recognize that internal GPS system that the Lord gives us of his voice dwelling within us, then we need to learn to do what the doctor does when he gives us or she gives us a routine physical examination. We need to learn how to sit still and be silent. That sense of being quiet becomes a critical part of examining our conscience. If you want to examine your conscience, give yourself time and space. If you're going to go um, to confession, for instance, on an upcoming Saturday, my encouragement to you is if you want to prepare well, that you would take 15 to 30 minutes of silent listening. Silent listening, you might have a pad of paper and a pencil or pen, and, and you might want to jot down what is emerging in you. Now that might seem like a foreign thought. Let's see what the Catechism has to say about the importance of being still and listening as a part of examining our conscience. This is from paragraph 1779, paragraph 1779. It is important for every person to be sufficiently present to himself in order to hear and follow the voice of his conscience the requirement of interiority is all the more necessary as life often dis- detracts uh, i'm sorry as life often distracts us from any reflection self-examination or introspection return to your conscience the catechism quotes question it turn inward brethren and in everything you do see god as your witness this passage is, is both beautiful and profound, and it's, it is really a challenge to us today, why? We as a culture, just the, the whole flow of, of the, the moment in which we live, the pace of life in which we live, the external stimulations that we have all around us, it kind of uh, uh, make it, uh, make us less attracted and even a bit hesitant or even resistant to just sitting quietly and paying attention to what's happening within and yet it's there in the depths of the heart that christ himself will speak to us that we will meet the voice of god an examination of conscience is our opportunity to stop and reflect on our lives and to ask god how have you been at work in my day god where were you today or god help me to recognize help me to see and realize if I made any wrong turns today. Now, the Catechism says in 1454, the reception of this sacrament ought to be prepared for by an examination of conscience made in the light of the Word of God. The passages best suited to this can be found in the Ten Commandments, the Moral Catechesis of the Gospels, and the Apostolic Letters, such as the Sermon on the Mount and the Apostolic Teachings. So the Catechism is saying, If you want to have some kind of external aid to help you go within and discover within and pay attention to the voice of God within, turn to the Word of God without. Turn to the Word of God that is outside of you. Why? Well, the Word of God is a living Word. It has a capacity of shining a light, a bright light on our lives. Catechism, I'm sorry, the, the scripture, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 and 13 say this. Indeed, the word of God is living and effective, sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating even between soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and able to discern reflections and thoughts of the heart. No creature is concealed from him, but everything is naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must render an account. When we read the scriptures... We are coming into contact with that heart of Christ, that light of Christ, that two-edged sword that can cut through all that would make us uh, want to hide or make us unaware, all that would confuse us regarding, what was God asking of me? What is God asking of me now? And so reading the scriptures, especially in the places that were suggested by the catechism, these are places that, that are an invitation to the living Word of God to shine the bright light of God's holiness onto our lives. Now, in order to do this, we can um, not only prepare in a, in a way that is immediate uh, when we make a um, a what's called approximate preparation for confession by doing an examination of conscience immediately uh, as we get ready for confession. We can also make the examination of conscience a daily spiritual practice. Remember, I talk continuously in this book about living a confessional life, living a confessional life. And, just, and so the analogy plays out just as making a good examination of conscience as a, an immediate preparation for a good confession uh, is critical, so also having an examination of conscience be a regular spiritual practice or discipline in our lives, is going to, in fact, be a great aid in living out our lives each and every day as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Well, how do we do that? This is how I was taught by a wonderful Jesuit spiritual director 20 years ago, how to make a good daily examination of conscience. Traditionally, it's done at the end of the day. Like in the morning, you make a morning offering, you offer your life, you offer your day to the Lord, you ask for the leading of the Holy Spirit, and you commit to following the Spirit's lead. Well, at the end of the day, what do you do? You stop and in silence, you quiet yourself first, and then you do three things, three steps to the examination of conscience. The first step is you ask the Lord to grant you the grace to see the ways that you both recognized and responded to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. You recognized and responded to the call, to the grace that was offered to you in the, in the midst of your day. And so it's a matter of casting back over your day and recognizing, seeing all oh, that's right. God was at work there. I saw the opportunity to make the phone call, to reach out and extend myself, to stop and to pray, to, to, rest and uh, to avoid this sin, you know, whatever it was, and I I recognized and I responded to that. And for those times where I both recognized and responded to God's grace, the promptings of God's Holy Spirit, I give thanks. Gratitude is the first expression in the examination of conscience. Gratitude for recognizing and responding to God's grace in the course of that day. Well, you can see what the second one's going to be. As I also scan back over the day, I'm asking the Lord to reveal to me those times where I either failed to recognize or failed to respond to the promptings of God's Holy Spirit, to the grace that was offered to me to respond to the call of the moment. And when I become aware through the grace of God of my failure to recognize, my failure to see the opportunity or to respond to it appropriately and completely, and for those moments, what do I do? I ask for forgiveness. I repent. I say I'm sorry. I cry out to God for mercy. What's the third step? Well, once I am grateful to God for the ways that I have responded, and I ask forgiveness for those times and ways that I failed, the last step is resolution. I resolve to do a better job tomorrow. I resolve to follow the Holy Spirit's lead, to respond to God's grace and the call of tomorrow, to be led by the Spirit tomorrow. I resolve to say yes, that my day tomorrow would be a yes to God. That's my, there's the word, resolution. So you you can see how examination of conscience is connected to the concept of a resolve to follow the Lord so uh, when we do that what we are learning to do is to develop a life a confessional life that has as an integral expression i will never do it again i will never sin again living a confessional life my wife carrie and i we met and we were married in Washington DC because we were both studying in the area. After several years there, we decided to move back to Washington state where Kerry grew up. Now Carrie and I had just moved back to Seattle after having been away, Kerry had been away for years, five years. We walked into this pub on a Friday night and all of a sudden people start coming up to Kerry. Kerry, how you doing? Carrie, great to see you. And it wasn't just one person or two. It was like a crowd of people came over and they're saying, hey, Carrie, how are you? And she's recognizing these people. I'm like, okay, what is going on here? Carrie herself was stunned. Like, what is happening here? Well, here's the truth. We walked in on Carrie's 10th high school reunion. Did you hear that? (laughs) What are the odds of walking in on the place, the location, the, the time, of Kerry's 10th high school reunion. I mean, it's just staggering to imagine. Well, let's just say after a brief time being there, just a matter of moments, Kerry's like, let's get out of here. And and I'm like, why? Let's stay. Well, we walked out and coming up behind us out of the pub was, must've been a manager, uh, because he had a sign. And he posted the sign in front of the pub that said, private party, no admittance. I mean, this was amazing all by itself, because literally, if we had walked past that pub just a couple minutes later, just a couple minutes later, we wouldn't have been able to get in and we wouldn't have known who was on the inside that Carrie had rec- would have recognized all these people from her high school years. Well, why did Carrie want to leave? I wanted to stay. I wanted to find out more. Uh, well, I just had to stop and think just briefly about what it was like to get, to get ready for my own 10th High School Reunion. I remember months in advance of the 10th High School Reunion, some postcard came in the mail, Save the date, 10th High School Reunion's coming. And immediately at that moment, when my classmates uh, throughout, uh, throughout the area got, wherever they were living, got that postcard, resolutions went up. That's it, I'm going on a diet. That's it, I'm getting a new wardrobe. That's it. I'm gonna change my luck, right? There's this sense of, oh my Lord. Lord, has it been 10 years? Who am I gonna see back then? Who was I back then? Who am I now? What have I become? I had dreams for those 10 years. What is the trajectory of my life? The encounter that, that people have in their 10th high school reunion is an encounter that is like a big bright spotlight that puts into question their own lives, puts into question their own sense of identity, who they have been, who they're becoming, how they're living now, what their own sense of identity and trajectory is. That's a big bright light. And you know what? It takes months to prepare for when it comes to a high school reunion. No wonder Kerry didn't wanna see it. No wonder Kerry walked in on it and had no preparation. Just bam, there it is. Well if we can understand why we would typically avoid a situation where a bright light would put into question how we've been living, and that's something that we would naturally be inclined to avoid, when it comes to our lives as disciples, not only must we not avoid that kind of encounter, because oftentimes that's what confession can be, right? It can be an encounter by which we are confronting ourselves with, the vision and plan of God for our lives. How am I living? Who am I becoming? What am I doing? Where have I come over these past years? Confession can be like a spotlight that shines on all of our lives. But if we are to be faithful disciples of the Lord, the encounter with the bright light of God's holiness is something that we should not only not avoid, it should be something that we eagerly, faithfully, urgently seek out. We should seek it out each and every day. Why? Because it's in the light of God's holiness that we will become aware of all of the ways that we are yet, uh, that we are yet manifesting and living out that call that is ours to be perfect the way that our Heavenly Father is perfect, that we are called to be holy in every aspect of our conduct. Now, Here's what I want to propose to you. As we seek out the bright light of God's holiness, as we strive to come into the presence of God and ask the Lord to reveal his majesty to us, God, show me your face. I seek out your holiness. What's going to grow in us? The answer is actually surprising. And the way that um, Hans Urs von Balthasar wrote about it, I can't find the exact quote, was this. Is that as the saints grew in holiness, as they grew in union with God's, who is all holy, infinitely holy, as they grew in nearness and likeness to him in love, and the number of their sins decreased, the horror they experienced over their remaining sins increased. Well, how do we foster that sense of an increased resolution? Well, at the end of the day, this is a gift that comes from God. And you can beg and plead and ask and seek and knock for God, knock on the door of, uh, of prayer for God to reveal his holiness to you. But there's another part to this. And the other part is exemplified in the last story I'm going to end with. It's the story of, uh, I heard in a sermon one time about St. Thomas Aquinas, who was approached by one of his brothers, Brother Dominicans, and said, what must I do to become a saint? What must I do to become a saint? And St. Thomas Aquinas responded in two words, will it, will it, make that decision, make that commitment, give yourself over to that call to become a saint. Does that cause someone to become a saint? Does that mean that Aquinas is proposing it's all back on us again, our shoulders to make this happen? Absolutely not. In fact, what Aquinas is getting at is that our call is not to will our becoming saints on our own because we've decided to, but rather we are called to will what God wills for our lives. God is resolved to forge you in the furnace of His holiness. God is committed to chisel away all that is blocking the revelation of the saintliness that he intends for your life. He is resolved to make you a saint. And your call, very simply, is to will what he wills, to let his resolve come to birth in you so that you become resolved to become a saint. Now, this is a a real challenging lesson for us. Why? Because we are resolved to do many things in our lives, I'm resolved to lose weight. I'm resolved to get a good job. I'm resolved to make money. I'm resolved to get better at this hobby. I'm resolved and I give myself over and I make big commitments to do a lot of things. How resolved are you to become a saint? How much time, effort, and energy? How much focused attention? How much of a commitment do you make in your day, in your week, in your month, in your year to say, Lord, I am resolved today to do what you are resolved to do in my life today. That's what I'm committed to. If we only could grow and resolve, if we could only become that child uh, that St. Dominic Savio was, that was resolved to say death but not sin, if we only could say, Lord, may your resolution grow in me, then we would be living that final sentence "I will never do it again. Not only when we go to confession and we come out of it, each and every day of our lives. That's my prayer for myself and for you. God bless you.